Tonight, in preparation for observing the Lord's Supper, we are continuing our study of Psalm 22, which we actually began last month prior to observing the Lord's Supper then. And in doing so, I want to remind you that we are walking on holy ground as we make our way through this remarkable, amazing psalm. And the reason that the ground of Psalm 22 is so holy isn't because this psalm is more inspired than any other portion of Scripture, because the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired, all of it is God-breathed. But this psalm is on holy ground in a special way because this psalm takes us into the mystery of Christ's sufferings like no other passage in the Bible in that it reveals to us not only why Jesus suffered, but what he was actually thinking as he suffered. See, as we established in our last study of Psalm 22, this psalm is very, very unique because unlike most of the other psalms written by King David, It has absolutely nothing to do with anything related to David's life or his personal experience. You see, although David was certainly no stranger to suffering, he suffered greatly, no suffering that David ever endured during his lifetime even comes close to resembling the sufferings that he describes here in Psalm 22. And the reason for this is because Psalm 22 isn't about David's sufferings at the hands of King Saul or any of his enemies, nor is it about believers in general suffering because of righteousness. No, you see, Psalm 22 is purely and totally a prophecy concerning the sufferings of Jesus Christ during his crucifixion. You see, in the sovereign plan of God, Psalm 22 is divinely designed as a prophetic picture of the sufferings that the Messiah would endure, written 1,000 years before it ever occurred and 500 years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of execution. So this psalm is a remarkable biblical prophecy about the Messiah's death. But Psalm 22 is also quite remarkable because it doesn't simply give us facts and information about Christ's crucifixion. It actually tells us what Jesus was thinking while he was suffering. See, what David has done for us in Psalm 22 is he has recorded for us the very thoughts of Christ as he was being crucified. The psalm tells us what Jesus was thinking, what he was praying about while he was suffering the anguish on the cross. And so what we have, folks, here in Psalm 22 is this unique view of the cross so that we're not really looking up at Jesus from the ground, but rather we feel as if we're right there with him, next to him, on the cross, listening to him speak to the Father. We overhear what he's saying. And the biblical proof that the one who is doing the talking in Psalm 22 is Jesus is that the New Testament tells us this very clearly. It tells us that Christ is the one who's speaking. I refer you to Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to read to you verses 9 through 12. The writer says, But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So, 
he's established that what he's writing about concerns Jesus. He goes on in verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren saying, now watch this, saying, this is what Jesus is saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now this last verse, verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 2, is presented, as I just showed you, in Hebrews chapter 2 as Jesus speaking. That's very clear. And the inspired writer tells us that what he's saying is this, I'll proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. And what I want you to notice is that this is a direct quote from Psalm 22. It's Psalm 22, verse 22, which means that the correct way to interpret this psalm is to see that it is Jesus, and only Jesus, who's speaking, not only in this verse, but throughout the entire psalm. And what Jesus speaks about in these verses is the agony of his suffering the suffering that he experienced during the six hours that he was on the cross. Now, as we mentioned last month, in writing Psalm 22, David tells us that Christ's suffering on the cross took on three forms. In other words, Jesus suffered in three very distinct ways in his crucifixion. Last time, we carefully examined the first way that he suffered, which is that he suffered by being rejected by God the Father. I'll read to you again verses 1 through 5. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance on the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, really... There are no sadder words in all the Bible than the words uttered in these verses by Jesus, especially verse 1, because they tell us that while, while on the cross, he, the sinless Son of God, was abandoned, forsaken by God the Father. The one who had never experienced a moment of being out of fellowship with the Father was now utterly rejected and forsaken by that same father while he was on the cross. And Jesus knew that he was forsaken because the apostle Matthew tells us in the New Testament that while on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon, just before he died, Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated, we read, translated is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this wasn't a mere reciting of Psalm 22 as if Jesus was meditating on Scripture and this just came to his mind. No, this was the orphaned cry of the Son of God because he had really been abandoned by his Father. And this abandoning wasn't momentary. It lasted the full duration of the crucifixion. As God the Father hid his fellowship hid his presence from Christ and remained silent and aloof from him, even though Jesus was crying out for his help. You see, we read in verse 2 that though Jesus cried out during the first three hours on the cross, during the hours of daylight, 
and then continued crying out to the Father for help during the last three hours on the cross when there was no sunlight. We read there was no deliverance, only silence, which was completely out of the ordinary because in verses 4 and 5, what we see is that in times past, God did deliver those of his people who cried out to him. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So what Jesus is saying, in times past, our fathers, the Jewish people, they cried out to you when they needed deliverance and you were there for them. But God who had delivered others when they suffered did not deliver Christ that day. And the reason for this total abandoning by God the Father is because while Jesus hung on the cross, he was bearing the sins of all those who would one day come to believe in him as their Savior. And that is to say, he was being judged in their place as their substitute, experiencing the eternal wrath, the eternal wrath of God that, that we all deserve to experience. The Apostle Paul explained the theological meaning of the cross when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that great Verse, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is to say that Christ, who was without any sin, while on the cross, was treated by the Father as if he had committed all of our sins, and we who have trusted Christ as our Savior, though we are terrible, terrible sinners, deserving condemnation, deserving judgment, we are treated by God as if we were as righteous as Christ. Now folks, that is the grace of God and salvation. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. That the basis and the only basis for our salvation is that Jesus paid the full penalty for our sins by being punished in our place. And the punishment that he endured was hell itself, which is being forsaken rejected, abandoned by the Father, away from the presence of the Lord, as the Apostle Paul would put it in the New Testament. And the reason for such an abandonment of Christ is because God is holy, perfectly holy, and therefore he could never have any kind of fellowship or benevolent relationship with Christ while he was bearing our sins in his body. And that's the sole reason he abandoned and rejected Christ while he was crucified. This is precisely what the Bible teaches about the meaning of Christ's death. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, which gives a prophetic statement about the Messiah, Daniel says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This cutting off is a reference to death. He'll be cut off. He'll die. But Daniel said, but not for himself. So what Daniel is saying is that the Messiah, yes, he will die. His life will be cut off but not because of anything that he's done. His death will be for the sake of others. And Paul explains what this means in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul said, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse of the law is the fact that those who break it must be divinely judged, cursed by God's eternal damnation. But Christ was cursed in our place as he hung on that tree, the tree in the form of a cross. See, the correct biblical 
understanding of the meaning of Christ's death is that he died being punished for the sins of others. He didn't die as a martyr, nor was his death a plan when bad. His death was the will of God. It was prophesied that he would die and that in his death he would be rejected by the Father because he was experiencing the judgment, the condemnation that we deserve, which was the full outpouring of God's wrath against sin. As John MacArthur in his book, The Murder of Jesus, so poignantly puts it, he says it was a punishment so severe that a mortal man could spend all eternity in the torments of hell and still he would not have begun to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped on the Christ at the cross. But praise God, praise God, Christ's death did exhaust the divine wrath of God the Father. And that's why you and I, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are forgiven of all of our sins because there are no sins that were left unpunished. None. In his death, Jesus paid for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. And he completely paid for them so that for all of eternity, we can enjoy the full presence and fellowship of the Lord and never have to fear being expelled from heaven because God's wrath wasn't fully, completely satisfied and more punishment towards us is necessary. That will never happen. Now, there's no more punishment needed because Christ's death completely satisfied the wrath of God. The Bible has a big term for that. It's called propitiation. 1 John 2.2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, meaning that God's sense of justice was totally satisfied by the death of his son and being rejected by the Father was necessary for this to happen and thus the reason Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But our Lord's suffering and his crucifixion were not limited to being rejected by the Father. Certainly that was the worst part of it, the most dreadful kind of suffering imaginable for Jesus. But he suffered another way too. And as David continues Psalm 22, he tells us the second way that Jesus suffered. Not only did he suffer by being rejected by the Father, but he also suffered by being insulted by man. We read in verse 6, and I know I touched on this last time, but this is good to see it in this, in this light. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Now as we continue to hear Jesus talk, we hear him saying, that those around the cross, meaning who? Meaning the Jewish bystanders and onlookers from the crowd that had called for his death. They looked at him as if he were as worthless as a worm. In other words, they considered him so lowly, like a worm of no value, that they just didn't care if he lived or died. Who cares about a worm? To them, he wasn't a precious human being created in the image of God, even though they rejected him as Messiah. They didn't even see him as a precious human being. Created in God's image. No, to them he was less than human. He was just a worthless creature. A frail and weak pest to be crushed. And because they felt this way about Jesus, he tells us that they reproached him and they despised him. That is to say that the Jewish spectators, those who had followed him and the Roman soldiers to the place of the cross, they held him in utter contempt. They hated him. They despised him. And in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us how they expressed their contempt for him. All who see me sneer at me. 
They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now what these verses, folks, are describing are the verbal insults, the vicious taunting that Jesus was forced to endure while he was being crucified. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us took place as the gospel of Matthew tells us how this prophecy was fulfilled. So I read to you Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 43. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, also along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. As you can see, this is the fulfillment of what was predicted by David in Psalm 22. But what makes this prophecy so amazing is that these insults were hurled at Jesus by his enemies. Those who had no intention of fulfilling prophecy, but unwittingly, They did. And in fulfilling prophecy, they actually, note this, they actually strengthened the claims of Jesus being the Messiah. Because, as I said, they unwittingly fulfilled prophecy made about him 1,000 years earlier. Listen to these insightful words by Bible teacher John Phillips. He writes, one of the most significant features of this prophecy lies in the fact that it foretold exactly what the Lord's enemies would say to him. One can conceive an imposter play-acting prophecies to make them seem to come true. But how could such a one make his enemies play-act the fulfillment of prophecy too? The priests and the people assembled at Calvary, they knew Psalm 22 very well. But they had no desire to prove the claims of Jesus to be Messiah, to be what was true. On the contrary, they did everything they could to disprove those claims. Yet despite themselves... They used the very language of Psalm 22 when taunting him, thus fulfilling prophecy. Now for a few minutes, I want us to consider exactly how these people taunted Jesus and to consider why they taunted him. After all, these men, many of them were the religious leaders of Israel and others, the crowd that supported them, they got what they wanted, which was Jesus being crucified just as they had demanded of Pontius Pilate. Yet they continued to abuse him. Why add to his suffering? They had thirsted for his blood, and they succeeded in persuading the Roman authorities to crucify him. So why not just go home and leave the poor man alone? That's not what they did. No, they followed him to the cross, and there they stood looking up at his tortured body as it was being crucified, treating him so inhumanely by heartlessly mocking and insulting him. So why did they do this? What did Jesus ever do to them to bring such contempt for him, from them upon him? Why would they treat him this way? Well, first of all, let's discover how they taunted him. According to what David says, In verse 7 of Psalm 22, not only did they hurl verbal insults of mockery at the Lord, which is what he means when he says, all who see me sneer 
at me, but they actually made body and facial gestures that conveyed their utter contempt and disdain for him. We're told that they separate with the lip. Do you know what that means? It's the ancient way of saying they stuck out their tongues at him. While Jesus was on the cross, people on the ground, grown men, were looking up and sticking out their tongues at him like children while he was undergoing the most intense mental, physical, emotional, spiritual anguish that anyone has ever experienced. These men had absolutely no compassion on Christ. He's suffering, he's in great agony, crying out to God for help, but they simply didn't care. Because to them, he wasn't even a man. He was only a worm. And who cares about the sufferings of a worm? And in addition to sticking out their tongues at him, we read in verse 7 that they wagged their heads. They wagged their heads at him, which simply means that they're shaking their heads and in mockery of him, as if to say by this gesture that his situation is absolutely hopeless. Commenting on such cruel mocking and gesturing, Spurgeon wrote these very vivid and pointed words. He said, pouting, grinning, shaking of the head, thrusting out of the tongue, and other modes of derision were endured by our patient Lord. Men made faces at him before whom angels veil their faces and adore. Isn't that amazing? The prophet Isaiah tells us that the holy angels who stand in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven, they are in such awe of him and his holiness that they actually cover their faces so that they don't directly gaze upon his glory. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. But Jesus, who's always been adored by angels, now on the cross, he suffers as wicked men make these foolish and idiotic gestures of contempt at him. But it wasn't only the contemptuous gestures that he was forced to endure. We read that those who stood at the cross also hurled blasphemous insults at him. According to Psalm 22, we read in verse 8 that they taunted him by telling him to commit himself to the Lord so that he could deliver him. They said, let the Lord rescue him because he delights in him. Now listen closely, what these men were doing, they were ridiculing the very faith of Jesus. They were cruelly attacking his confidence in God. In other words, they were saying something, something like this. Hey you, you're always telling others to trust the Lord. You're always telling them to commit themselves to the Lord and he'll take care of you. Well, let's see you commit yourself to the Lord and experience God's deliverance. After all, you tell everyone that God delights in you personally, so let's see God rescue you if you're such a delight to him. That's what they're saying. See what these men are doing? In their minds, they're giving Jesus a taste of his own medicine. You tell others to trust in God for deliverance, so if your faith is so great, then you trust in God to deliver you. You see, in essence, what they're doing is they're accusing Jesus of being a man who does not have faith in God. And the proof of this is that God has abandoned him and he's not coming to his aid. Now this must have stung our Lord deeply because as one person has said, faith is the tenderest point in a good man's soul. 
So this must have really hurt Jesus. But, but it's a good thing to keep in mind when our faith is attacked by someone. Because it's a comfort to know that Jesus completely understands what we're going through because he went through the same thing. His faith was attacked. This is part of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings that Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 3. Paul said he longed to experience this, this fellowship of suffering with Christ because when you have been attacked like Christ was, you enter a new understanding of what our Lord went through because you know experientially something deeper of what he went through. And in this case, Jesus experienced the pain of being accused of not being a godly person, of not having true, genuine faith in the Lord. So we know from these verses how Jesus was taunted by gestures of contempt and by insulting, blasphemous attacks upon his faith. The question becomes this, why did these men do this? Why did they do this? Why did they say such cruel things to Jesus? Why did this Jewish crowd, the Lord's own people, his kinsmen, hate him so much? Well, there are a number of reasons for this. For one thing, it's because the human heart in its unsaved, natural state, apart from Christ, apart from regeneration, is wicked and cruel and hateful and murderous. I read this morning to you, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. I'll say it again. It says that before we were converted, we were hateful and we hated others. We were hated and we hated. In addition, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And it was Satan who put into the hearts of these Jewish religious leaders and their followers to have Jesus murdered and to have so much contempt for him that they actually mocked him in his last agonizing hours of suffering. This is the wicked heart, the wicked human heart on display for all to observe. It is a heart that hates God. There's another reason, though, why these people had such contempt for Christ. You see, the New Testament reveals that the ruling Jewish council, known as the Sanhedrin, they felt absolutely threatened by Jesus, fearful that most of Israel would turn away from their leadership to follow Christ as King and Messiah. And if that happened, then they knew that the Roman government would take away their positions of power and influence and authority within the Jewish nation. Folks, it's a power struggle. And so they decide to eliminate Christ. This is what we read in John chapter 11, starting in verse 47. This convening of the Sanhedrin. Here's what happened. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. The Sanhedrin wickedly decided to kill Christ 
only to protect themselves in order to maintain their power, their influence over the people of Israel, which makes the murder of Jesus then a selfish power struggle. And therefore, what we see them doing at the cross with their insults and their stupid facial gestures is they are this, they are gloating over their victory. They're gloating over their victory. In other words, their mockery is nothing more than a display of smug self-satisfaction because they see Christ hanging on the cross as the success of their evil plot to eliminate him as a threat to their power and influence. And their taunting of him is their way of reveling in their victory, denouncing him as a messianic fraud whose faith in God was insufficient to deliver him from death. Now, in light of the fact that it's Christ's faith that the Jewish leaders decided to zero in on by mockingly telling him that if he really trusted in God as he says he does, then God would come to his rescue. So what about his faith? While on the cross, did Jesus trust God even though he knew he was being abandoned by him? And the answer is yes. Yes, he did. He did have faith because to not have faith would be sin. And though Jesus was punished as if he were a sinner, he never sinned but remained sinless. In the next couple of verses, he speaks about his faith, his trust in God the Father. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Now essentially, these words are Christ's answer to the accusation that his faith in God was non-existent. Otherwise, he would have been delivered from the cross, they said. Jesus declares that from his earliest days, as an infant, nursing at his mother's breast, he was taught to trust in God. And he has trusted God throughout his life. And he continues to trust God, even while undergoing the agony of being crucified. And because his trust was still in God, he proceeds in verse 11 to ask God, to help him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Still trusting God, Jesus prays that the Father would come to his aid. The expression, be not far from me, it's a request for God to be present, for God to be there, for God to help him. And the reason he needs God's help, he says, is because trouble is near and there's no one to help me. And there really wasn't anyone. There was no one around to help him. All of his disciples had deserted him. And as we've already discovered, God the Father had abandoned him. But he still needed help desperately because he says, trouble is near. And the trouble that he's referring to was that at the cross, he was surrounded not only by the taunting Jewish spectators who verbally attacked him, but he was also surrounded by heartless Roman soldiers who physically attacked him by forcing him to be crucified. And the next time we study this psalm, we will discover the physical suffering that Jesus endured when he was crucified. Due to what? Due to the inhumane treatment at the hands of the Roman soldiers. So let's pray before we move to the Lord's Supper and 
ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. Lord, we have studied your word. We have seen how horribly you were treated. And Lord, our, our hearts break because it was for us. It was for us you went through this. And you were so mocked, taunted, foolish, idiotic gestures, wagging the, the head, sticking the tongues out at you, Lord. How dare they do that? But, but honestly, if we were there in our unregenerate states, we, we all would have done that. We all would have done that. But we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that though we were once your enemies, you have loved us and mercifully, graciously died for us. And now, Lord, as we come to this portion of the service where we observe what you've commanded us to observe, your supper, we pray it'll be a very precious, precious time for us and that you would derive pleasure from our obedience. In your name we ask this. Amen. So, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we want to think about Christ's suffering. Not only the suffering of being forsaken by the Father, but how he was insulted by men. If you're a believer in him, then this is a time to think about the fact that he did this for you. For you. He loved you so much that the one who angels adore was willing to be hated and mocked and scorned and insulted for you. So this is a time to thank him for this kind of, of love. To be encouraged because he understands experientially what it feels like to be verbally attacked for his faith. Just as we are at times. Now if you've never trusted Christ as your personal sin bearer by turning to him for salvation. And this is the time to do that. You see, it's one thing to know in your head, to know mentally, intellectually, that Christ died for sinners, but it is quite another thing to know and to believe in your heart that he died for you personally. This is very personal. So consider that. Have you really trusted him? If you have, then you should certainly participate in the Lord's Supper. If you haven't, then you need to trust him, but if not, then let the elements pass you by. And for those of us who do know Christ, I want us for the next few minutes to think, to thank him, to praise the Lord for what he has done on the cross, as well as examining our own hearts to see if there's any sin that you need to repent of, that I need to repent of in my heart, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. So let's for a few minutes now be quiet before him, be thanking him, praising him that he went through all of this simply because he loved you. Let's be silent before him. Lord, we thank you for all that you took in our place. May this be a very special time as we remember you. Lord, we do this in obedience to you. And may this be a time that we really reflect upon not simply our sin, but that our sin was placed upon you. And therefore, we bear it no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's again thank him. We could never thank him enough. Lord, just as you gave thanks for the bread, so we give thanks that your body was broken for us. That the bread is symbolic of the brokenness that you experienced while on the cross. Lord, we're grateful that no one took your life. You voluntarily gave it up. You are the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Lord, as we partake of this bread, we pray that our thoughts might indeed be genuinely focused on you. We're so grateful for what you've done for us, Lord. For all of eternity, we'll be singing your praises. We'll be, we'll be adoring you. We'll be appreciating even more what you've done for us. But for now, we give you thanks. In your name we ask this. Amen. Paul continues in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, let's thank him. Lord, we're so very grateful that we are not under the old covenant because the old covenant is the law which only tells us that we were sinful and that we broke the law. But we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you that the new covenant tells us that there is forgiveness with you. We thank you, Lord, that your blood was shed because without the shedding of blood, we read, there's no remission of sins. You are indeed the perfect lamb of God who takes away our sins. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we are forgiven, and not in part, but the whole, that you did exhaust when you died the, the full wrath of God the Father so that we would never experience any of the Father's wrath. Lord, for that we praise you. For that we thank you as we partake of the cup. In your name we ask this. Amen. It's so wonderful to observe the Lord's Supper. So wonderful. Let's stand for prayer. And it's been good to be in the Lord's house today. Our Father, we do want to remember those in our congregation who are hurting financially. Lord, help us as a body of believers who love our people to demonstrate your, your love. And your love is a caring love that meets needs. So help us, Lord, if we see a need to meet it, if not in this venue, in some other, to help those who are poor, those who are hurting, those who have unexpected bills. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the generosity of the Lakeside Congregation, and may that continue as we not only preach and talk about love, but as we actually do it and show love and demonstrate it and do life with one another. Now, Lord, we pray as we are about to be dismissed, as we go into our mission field, help us to be mindful of sharing the gospel, that you would open doors and that we would be loving and kind and yet bold to proclaim Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.